0: Lord, forgive us if we've spoken anything that's been out of thy will. Uh, We're so crammed full of you and your reality and what you're doing in these days, Lord, that we can speak for hours, but we want you to shape and to single out the things that bless your heart and that are out of your heart, and we ask you just to possess this body and come in and take it over and put us on and wear us and uh, take our mind upon yourself, our brain, our energy, our mouth, our heart, our emotion, and, and Lord, let them see Jesus. Uh, you speak to them as the living God who woos and wins and draws to himself. Precious God, let not one who is here tonight have any doubt whatever that they heard from the Almighty God and that their hearts were deeply stirred and that you ministered to them whatever they need. Have thy perfect way in Jesus' name. Uh, we Jews are so conscious of being prejudiced against, and it, it, it's true. But I want to acknowledge that, at least for me, I'm cap- I was quite capable of my own prejudices. I had quite a thing going against the goyim all my life. And I wondered what I could ever have to do with those people who, have, who are light-complected and sandy-haired and have freckles and come from the Midwest. You know, the gap was so enormous, I could never see any basis for bridging the gap. And I said, on top of that, I was a man of very intense anger and hatred as a result of the war. And I said, isn't in life ironic that a man of this nature would, during the Korean War, be sent to, to Germany to live in the bosom of the people that he would despise? And then I went on to describe the experience I had there. After being there for some months, I, I came to see the tremendous similarities between German life and Jewish life. Uh, the German is so much like our Yiddish. And they're, they like good food and drink and talk, and that's just so Jewish. We could, They call it like the kite and I loved their medieval towns and cities, and the sense of antiquity that's centuries old. It really touched my heart. It was America where I always felt like a man without a country. And the more I came to be drawn to this people, the more I could not understand how they could have done what they did. The fact of the Holocaust of six million Jews being turned to ashes and to soap in the 20th century was for me the single greatest brute fact of our age. It it, it, tra- it transcends any other si- consideration. It's so stupefying that this was done in our age of enlightenment and progress, not by some barbaric people, but by the most eminently civilized people on earth. And I never had an answer for that. And it was just I was like a, a pot on the stove, boiling, seething, frothing over. There was a canker in my heart. And it came a Jewish holiday. You notice how the, we, we call the holy days holidays? How, how the devil has pulled out from under us the two most sacred events of the year, the two most Jewish events of the year, Christmas and Easter, and he's made of them holidays and shopping sprees and orgies of paper and plastic and ribbon and tinsel and junk. I tell you, I dread the Christmas season that's coming. It, it makes my soul to wince. We have a God who is holy. And excuse me if I'm going to ramble back and forth, but God's just dropping things into my heart. When we lived in Kansas City just a few months ago, I picked up a girl at a home for unwed mothers who was going to be our babysitter that night. And it was the Christmas singing season, and I was humming a Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And this Jewish girl said to me, I didn't know she was Jewish, she said, please, Mr. Kent, she said, I, I wish you wouldn't uh, sing those songs. She said, eh, uh, Uh, It makes me feel so nostalgic. she said, I'm a Jewish girl who has always been very strangely drawn to these Christmas songs, and it bothers me. I turned to this kid. I said, if you really understood, Christmas is the most Jewish event of the year. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Had we known that in Micah, our prophet, in the fifth chapter, in the second verse, that God had said to us, but out of thee, Bethlehem Freder, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet shall he come forth unto me, who is to be the ruler of all Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. But we didn't know. We didn't know what the prophets wrote. And that's why Jesus said, if you knew Moses and you knew the prophets, you would know me, for they spoke of me. But that Jewish girl's uh, problem was mine. We never read the prophets We never opened the scriptures. Karl Marx I read, and Sigmund Freud I read, and Eric Fromm I read, and every modern commentator I read, and every writer of seductive literature I read. But the book of the living God, that I never opened. Beneath my contempt, an offense to my intellect. So, I was an atheist. You know, atheism is the only intelligent position. If you've never been exposed to the reality of the living God. If you've just had a bland church or synagogue exposure, I believe that atheism is the logical consequence. I never saw any evidence for God, whatever. Seven years at a Hebrew school and widely exposed in traditional Jewish life, no, I don't remember anyone ever speaking about God. It was a kind of the unspoken thing. You don't. It's an embarrassing subject. You don't talk about that. And I was desperately in search of meaning and truth. And by the time I was a 15-year-old kid in in Brooklyn, I was already uh, assured that the answers for my life were needed to be found in Jewish religion or Gentile religion. And I wondered why people were even getting excited about religions and denominations when there's no God. If there's no foundation, why are you bothering about a superstructure? Religion is just a ceremonial thing. It just provides a place where you get married or baptized or confirmed or bar mitzvah. What has that to do with Life. I was seeking life, and I wanted it more abundantly. And there are a lot of people in that condition today who have thrown out the baby with the bathwater. They've, they've had a little inoculation in churches. They've heard some, some doctrine, some theology, and they've not seen life, and they, they've concluded that there's no God. So it was here I was in Germany, in Yom Kippur, a high holy day, the highest, the Day of Atonement. And I wasn't going to go to a synagogue. I went to a concentration camp. I thought it was far more fitting. And I visited this place called Dachau, which is preserved as a museum. And I didn't expect that I was going to find anything new that I didn't know before. I was already very informed, very uh, alive with my indignation and anger against the Germans. And I had an experience that day that, that turned my life completely around. You know, that uh, we think we know, but we don't know as we ought to know. There's no substitute for reality. There's no substitute for direct experience. Uh, you can be informed intellectually and theologically and, and spout it like an expert. But when you have that first hand contact with the real thing, whew, you remember what happened to that prophet Isaiah. He wasn't just a rank and file Jewish man, he wasn't just uh, one of God's uh, choice instruments. He was the prince of the prophets, the great oracle of God to whom was entrusted the most sacred revelations of the Messiah to come. But in the sixth chapter of his book, he had a little experience. He saw God high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And he saw God in his glory, in his magnitude, in his totality, attended by seraphim, angelic creatures, whose one function throughout the whole of eternity was to cry just one word, Holy, Holy, Holy. And the Shekinah glory of God was so great in that presence that the very doors lurched out of their jams and the place rocked on its foundation. And Isaiah didn't say anything glib like, Hi, Lord, it's me, it's your number one servant. He said, Oy ve," You know what that means? So you just had the King James. <laughs> it says, Woe is me. Oy ve" is almost untranslatable. It's, it's a cry of pain, Schmitz. It's something that when your heart is pierced through, Oye, me, me, I'm undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amidst the people of unclean lips. Oh, if I could pray for anything, I would pray for a vision of God in his holiness to come upon this earth, and even upon God's people, that our, we might be conscious of the taint on our lips, and we might be conscious of our easy talk and our glib and unctuous phrases, and our religious motions and our easy catechisms and all the rest, and fall on our faces before him and cry out, Oy vey, I'm undone. And then we would have a remedy. He would take the taint and the iniquity from us by the call from his altar. I had an experience, the first of its kind, in that concentration camp. I actually went into the barracks. Everything was preserved as it had been through those years. And I ran my hand over the wood bunks, and I could picture these gaunt skeletons that had been herded together there, like sardines once upon a time. And I walked down the company streets. The whipping posts were in their place. The commandant's office with the exhibition tables, and you could look through and see the photographs of mounds of hair and fillings from teeth and eyeglasses and tattered uniforms, implements of torture. What it was a museum of horror. And then I went into the gas room, and the jets were still there, and the sign in German, the door with the bolt. That uh, uh, informing these prisoners that they would receive a shower uh, to undress, and then right adjoining that was the factory of extermination uh, with the ashes still in the place in the ovens and conveyor belts. And I went outside, I put my hand on a smokestack, and I was undone. I was a slick hotshot in New York, full of brittle little, little information, but I didn't know as I got to know. The tragedy was so overwhelming. The reality of seeing the bones and the ashes still in their place, and picture this smokestack that used to belch 24 hours a day, just did me in. My brain shorted, my, my nerves, my heart, my emotions. I, I, I stumbled and staggered out of that place like a drunk man, and I found myself on a train. I didn't even know where I was being taken. I didn't care. I was numb with pain. I had my face pressed to the window, and I was being whisked back to Munich, one of the glorious cities of Germany. Seminaries concert halls, opera houses, museums, libraries, churches, all the paraphernalia of civilization. And right in the shadow of that civilization, this most unspeakable death. And I had my face pressed to the glass looking at the Bavarian countryside whizzing by, and the beauty of it just pierces your heart. It's not like New Jersey. It, 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 uh, <laughs> you've got to see it. I mean, these Germans, they must go with a vacuum cleaner in their forests. Uh, there's not such a thing as a crumpled cigarette pack or a... Or a a piece of wrapping from a, from chewing gum I, I, it's glorious and I thought of all of the, the genius that this beauty had inspired the Mozart's and Beethoven's and Fichte's and Hegel's and Nietzsche's and Schopenhauer's and Goethe's and Schiller's, there's no end to the composers and the poets and the artists and the philosophers that this same Germany had produced and I couldn't for the life reconcile how a nation that could produce this genius could also produce this horror but I tell you people that that is the lesson of the 20th century God is trying to tell us something. Our civilization has failed. And we're more cruel than animals when we're forced in desperation with our backs to the wall. And those of us who used to clock our tongues at the Germans and say, well, that was a German crime. Those Germans, World War One, World War II. A little surprised when after World War II we learned about the French in Algeria hanging men from their thumbs and pumping water into men to force confessions. Why, French... They're the the, the, the ones who originated the exquisite culture. And then we learned about our own boys and our own massacres. You know that there's no man good, no not one? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when we stand before him that day, we're not going to be saved because of our convenience or because the circumstances of our life were such that we were never forced to a place to demonstrate the horror and, and the death which was already in our hearts but our hearts will condemn us. And you know that I was in that little train compartment. It's not like the American trains; it's little cubicles where you slide the glass door shut. And I sensed that there was another man in that compartment with me. And I turned for a quick second, I did a very quick double take because I saw a blur of a blonde head and blue eyes. And when I saw that symbol of the master race, the Aryan, my enemy, after what i had just seen that day, I felt the hatred well up in me. I was consumed with hatred. I, I was ready to turn in that man and rend him limb from limb. And when I turned to focus on him, I saw that I didn't have to do it. It had already been done. He was a man without arms and legs, just a half man with artificial hooks and limbs, half a body left behind on a battlefield. And that poor sucker was writhing in pain, trying to adjust his limb with his hooks, and his hooks were slipping. And I had my arms folded over my chest, wearing the uniform of Uncle Sam, the army of the victor, looking on the vanquished and the defeated, the Jew and the Gentile, and watching that man squirm and in his seat in pain. And I was thinking to myself, suffer you, dog. Whatever pain you're experiencing now is only a minute portion of what your people inflicted upon mine. And know, as I watched this guy squirm, there was such a war raging in my own heart between pity and vengeance. And finally, in disgust, I just got out of my seat. I didn't say a word. I went right over to him, and I put my hands right on his limb to adjust it. And the moment I touched it, I could taste the nausea in my mouth. And this man beckoned to me uh, what I should do, and I turned this thing until he achieved his peace. And then he had me to sit down alongside him, and he offered me a cigarette. And we tried to carry on some kind of a conversation. It was the most pathetic and pitiful moment of my life. We were trying to be brothers! And I knew that given the right circumstances again, we would be rending each other's flesh. And you know I was studying that man's face? Because I believed that the man's character is written in his features. And I was looking for all the telltale signs of barbarism and cruelty. You see, because the same thing is going on now. Great rage, great hatred. Blacks are looking at calling us white devils and blue-eyed devils, and that we're capable of, of all kinds of horror. And you know that the Satan can develop such a mentality in a people that there'll come a time when they'll be able to throw each other into ovens without batting an eyelash and claiming that they're doing God a service. You know, I didn't see anything like that in that man's face. All I saw was just a very ordinary gentile face. And my heart broke. And you know, in that moment, I heard an inner voice that said, Art there, but for the grace of God go you. It's only an accident that you were born in Brooklyn. It's only a caprice that you were born Jewish. You might just as easily have been born in Germany, and then you would have been the one stoking the bodies into the oven. Whew. You know, I didn't cry out when I when that thought came to me. Oh no, not me. I'm a progressive. I'm concerned for mankind. I'm against exploitation of the imperialist. I belong to left-wing organizations. My head just slumped on my chest, and I received what was the evident truth. Oh, I had never committed murder, but I knew I was quite capable of atrocity because I had given looks that could kill, and I had spoken words that could kill, and I had raged and murdered in my heart. Imagine what was going to happen years later when I picked up the New Testament for the first time and I read from the lips of Jesus, he who's angry with his brother, is a murderer already? And that man that looks at a woman lustfully has, conduct, has committed adultery with her in his heart already? Something in my heart went click. Truth. It completely confirmed my experience. How did he have that depth of understanding, was my question. But that was years to come. But on the basis of that experience that day in that train with that German, I resolved to become a teacher. It was the wildest thing because I was a high school dropout. I was such a cut-up in New York, my poor mother was in the principal's office, I was a clown because the real questions that I was dying to have answered were never even asked. They were playing with geometry and with algebra and, and, and other nonsense, and I was a dying man seeking for life. It never occurred to me that I should be a teacher, but when that thing clicked in my head in that train, I thought, well catch you found yourself at last, because from 16 on, I'd been a merchant seaman. I'd worked in the streets uh, installing pipes, I'd broken concrete, I'd been a hitchhiker, I'd lived in California six different times, I had been through every kind of vocation and art craft and jewelry trade and relationship I and philosophy and cause, I'd been the route. I really believed that education was the answer. I don't care what men say about faith, but everyone has it of one kind or another. You can't live without a faith of one kind or another. My faith was in human intelligence. My faith was that education was the answer. My faith was that untainted and uncorrupted young people, if they had the proper kind of education, if they were really inspired, that together we could create a brave new world. I wasn't going to become a teacher just to give kids information that can take tests and get grades. I was going to be a revolutionary and create a world in the classroom. You know, we have a very patient God, waiting, waiting for us to come to the end of ourselves. How long? And isn't that what's happened in our world history? We're coming to the end of ourselves. All we battled and struggled and we've striven to obtain material welfare and security. And isn't it fantastic that the very time that we've arrived and succeeded is when we're beginning to see that we've really failed. Our civilization is falling apart. Our shallow culture is not enough. Demonic forces are loosed and strange currents are in the air and we're lurched out of orbit and we're dying. That's what happened to me as a man individually, and that's what's happening to the world collectively. Because we don't know him. To know him is life, and the absence of him is death. I labored like a fool for four years as a high school teacher in California. My Jewish mother had been waiting so many years for Nachris. You know what that means? She lives. <laughs> Satisfaction. You know, their lives are so frustrated. They have so much misfortune. They've struggled to save and to, to, to crimp and to get, to get their kids into schools and stuff like that. And my mother was waiting, especially for me, the black sheep of the family, that she should finally have nachas And now she can say, my son, the professor.
1: <laughs> I
0: allow her a little exaggeration, you know. And she could throw out her chest with pride. She didn't know what I taught or why I taught, but she could say, my son, the professional. And just when I gave every appearance of succeeding, finally, at the age of 34, when you would expect a man to do it, and I was being congratulated by my students and by my colleagues, I finally came to the realization that I was an utter and dismal failure. Because nothing fails like success. It was when I finally arrived and achieved my goals that I realized that I was nowhere. And I began to suspect that these kids were not innocent and untainted and uncorrupted fantastic what human nature is, whether it's seeking power, whether it's seeking preferment, whether it's seeking wealth, or even when it's seeking grades, how it will reveal itself. And I began to see how hollow, how cheap, how inadequate our humanist slogans are about human brotherhood, about our belief in human perfectibility, when I was getting a glimpse of nature as it really is. Oh, my kids could cry. They could get excited about Biafra and they can get a tear in their eye about uh, some underprivileged people. But I saw them where they really lived. I knew them when they really trembled. And the great crisis was not Biafra. The great crisis was being flat-chested. Whew. That was the real situation in a person's life. That was where they trembled to live. Or a pimple on a nose. Or the failure of a boy to pick him up for a date. Or inadequate horsepower for their cars. Or their immediate future. You know, we adults need to look down contemptuously on those kids because we're not one whit better. How do we look when we go to the new car showrooms and open those doors of those Buicks and Oldsmobiles and Pontiacs and <sniffs> smell that upholstery and chrome and we have such an ecstatic look in our face? Where your heart is, there are your treasures also. As God looks down upon us, we're all children, every one of us, misspending our lives seeking for the things that do not profit. I became so disillusioned when I began to see these realities and the, the final crusher was this. I, who was so artful in speaking all of the slogans of the world, and who, whose heart palpitated for all of the oppressed and the exploited, and who could point his finger with self-righteous indignation at the imperialist, I was beginning to see I was doing a pretty good job myself of being an imperialist and an exploiter. It, the whole thing is in the human heart. What, what is imperialism? But what we carry on in our beds with our wives, with our children, with our colleagues, it's the human dominance, it's it's possessiveness, it's the desire to assert ourselves. And I was beginning to see that my classroom was not just a classroom, it was a miniature universe. And the same forces that raged outside were raging inside, and I had no answer. And I came to the end of myself, and I stopped teaching. I had nothing to offer my students, but the sense of grief that I had for a world that was teeter-tottering on the brink of annihilation, and we had no answer. And I took a year's leave of absence. I remember talking to my best friend. I said, there's a reason for my taking this trip I can't even understand. I feel a tremendous inner compulsion to break every connection that I have and just thrust myself out in a a life stream and see what will happen. And I didn't travel first or second or third class. We teachers aren't that well-paid. I traveled for 14 months as a hitchhiking bum, standing by the side of the road doing this, And what an education I got in the drizzle and the rain as I watched those cars drive by and I saw those blank masks and those slash lines for mouths whose consciences I had pricked because I was standing there but they didn't have the courage to stop. And just before they got to me, I'm sure that they were telling themselves about human brotherhood. It's not what we speak. It's not our glibunctious phrases. It's the reality. But you know that strange people stop for me? I'll never forget a man who stopped for me in Switzerland in a brand new car. And he, he didn't just wait behind a wheel and give me this bit, hurry up, while I'm doing you a favor. He got out of the car and he greeted me at the side of the road beaming from ear to ear. You can imagine what my first suspicion was.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and this man took my, my filthy rucksack. I was living out of a knapsack for 14 months. And the fantastic thing was, I didn't use half the things that were in it. I was learning to live on one meal a day, and I was never healthier and I just be, I, I quote a glimpse of just how glutted and crowded and jammed our life is with goods and things, and we have every kind of excuse why we have to work, and our wives have to work, and we have to keep up with this and that, and we have no time. I would to God that you would know every Jewish person that I've spoken with, I don't have time to inquire of the things that you're representing to me. Busy, busy, busy. This man took that filthy rucksack and tossed it in the back seat of his car, and I winced when it hit the new upholstery, and I looked at his face, he hadn't even noticed. I thought to myself, what manner of man is this? Everybody I know that that gets a scratch on their bumper, offended, they're panic-stricken. And this guy, this car is just a mode of transportation. And he had me on the front seat, and off we drove, and he made me feel like the exalted guest. See, you can't make a man to feel like that, unless you're something very authentic. And this man turned and he looked at me and you can see I wasn't a high school kid out on a lark. It was past the tourist season. He said, why are you traveling like this in German? And, and so well as I could, I tried to explain. I was a modern man whose life was broken at its foundation. I was seeking for the deepest answers to life. And for some strange reason, it just came right out of my mouth, I told this man I was Jewish. That's something I didn't ordinarily share with Gentiles. And I saw the most amazing reaction, why this guy began to glow like a neon tube. As if being Jewish was somehow something special. Every other Gentile just grunted or nodded or went silent or worse. This man insisted that we stop for refreshments at his expense. And we had a conversation that day that I'll never forget. If you're wondering, how do I speak the things of God and Christ to my Jewish neighbor and friend? Are you really loving? Is the love of God palpitating in your heart? Or are you afraid to bring offense? Sometimes the loving thing is to be willing to run the risk. This man was willing to take the risk with me. He loved me so much, although I was a stranger to him. And it didn't begin by him giving me all kinds of brittle answers and the four spiritual laws or taking me by the lapel or showing me John 3.16 or asking me if i have been washed in the blood of lamb. I would have been immediately turned off. It began by me doing all the talking. and He was the most wonderful listener i had ever met. You know, he wasn't just hearing me. He was actually receiving my grimy and painful life into his own. His hearing of my life was an act of love. And I found myself pouring out to this stranger details of my life that I had not shared with members of my own family and closest friends. And I finally came to the end of myself. I expressed my weariness, my exhaustion, my hopelessness, my futility. And I looked at this man and I thought, Now what is he going to tell me? Philosophy, ideologies? I mean, I've been through the whole bit. There's nothing new under the sun. He said, Art, do you know what the world means? I had that cynical expression on my face, like a double billy to tell me what I said. He said, Art, what the world needs is for men to wash one another's feet. I'll never forget when I heard that one utterance. Something in my heart went pow, and I began to stagger and reel back. I went speechless. I studied. I I couldn't get two words together. My head was swimming, and before I could recover, I had a vision of all the proud, arrogant people of the world bent washing the feet of the lowly and the despised. And to my amazement, it wasn't just the bourgeoisie or the middle class or the wasps or the Caucasians or the Gentiles, but the art cancers of the world were down there. They were the arrogant and the contentious, strident voices filled with self-righteous indignation. And something cried out of my heart, Eureka! Cats, this is it. Overnight, bloodlessly, by a spirit of humility and love, the world can be transformed and the saliva began to run in my mouth, and this man went on to tell me about the gospel of Jesus Christ in German. I was 34 years old. I had lived an entire life in a so-called Christian country, and I was hearing the gospel for the first time. No one had ever put a piece of literature in my hand. No one had ever spoken to me, and I wasn't just some insulated Jew living in a ghetto in Brooklyn. I was widely traveled. I had lived in California on six different occasions. had all kinds of Gentile friends and colleagues. No one had ever spoken to me. And the moment that he began to tell me the gospel, I knew I was hearing the words of truth. And at the same time, it had to do with this name, Jesus, which shocked me. And I went on that day like a man who had been bludgeoned over the head, staggering under the impact of that encounter. And it wasn't long after, I was having other encounters just like that with radiant born-again children of God. Are you patient? Can I tell you one more? Because I met a girl who was a Gentile with the Gentiles. I shouldn't have had a thing to do with this kid. I was twice her age to begin with. She was obviously a wasp, and I found out in blue order that she was from Kansas, and she was a Protestant, and uh, she was everything that was the symbol to me of the world that I despised. But you know she had the same quality in her as that Swiss man? There was something about her that was magnetic. There was something so warm that drew me, and her friends had left her for the day. She was an American kid on vacation, and we went hand in hand and walked the woods around this European city. And I was pulling this kid's motives. I said, look, how come you've been kind to me? How are you not afraid of me? I'm a stranger. And this kid would just answer these questions in the most simple way as you expect a fine Christian girl to do. And the more she spoke about God, the more exasperated I was becoming. I don't like that kind of talk. And finally I thought to myself, Okay, kid, you've had it. I stopped and I hitched up my sleeves and I thought I'm going to give her my famous $64 question. Because when I wanted to alleviate boredom, I would go out and find the so-called Christians and engage them in debate and wipe them out. I had not yet found one who could really defend his convictions. So what was this little kid to me? I'd roll over her like a steamroller. I said, now look, and I, I got my engine all revved up. I said, you've been talking about God all and I'm sick of it. So just let me ask you one question. How do you know that God is? <laughs> I felt so small going to watch this. Here comes a little brittle answer, you know, they learn in Sunday school. I'll crush her. That kid didn't even hesitate for a moment. She looked up at me with that face, and she said, Archie said, I know that God lives. He lives in me. You know what happened to Artstein (laughs) Steamroller? Stopped. Dead in its tracks. And the same thing happened again. My heart exploded. I could feel the pieces flying around inside my chest. I started and real. I went speechless again. I was undone. And I was trying to think, what did she say? What was so powerful about that? What was so intellectual? What was so theological? And then it dawned on me what it was. It was simply true. God has called us to be a light unto the world. And I saw the light and the life and the love beaming out of that simple Gentile kid. And my heart was pierced through. I was twice that kid's age, twice as educated, twice as traveled. But I knew in that moment she was in the light and I was in the darkness. You know that God says in Romans that he's waiting for you to move my Jewish people to jealousy? Not by your fantastic churches and cathedrals and eloquent ministers. But I tell you, with a low ceiling place just like this, and a high ceiling voice, just like like
1: his. (laughs) I can say it because
0: I love him, and he knows it. This is the beautiful freedom that we have in Christ. I know this is the church that speaks the truth, but I tell you that... Any Jewish person walking into this atmosphere tonight knows that this is not just religion. There's something here. There's a warmth and a love and a presence. It's life. It's God. And that's what I recognized in that girl. And you know, just a few weeks after that, aboard the deck of a tram steamer. I was a a deck passenger, the cheapest way to go. I was on my way from Italy to Greece. I was more of a Greek than I was a Jew because I worshiped human intellect. I exalted man, which really means we're worshiping ourselves. (laughs) And guess what happened aboard the deck of that ship, uh, stuck together with bums and homosexuals and drifters and lost men? You should have seen the scenes that were enacted on that deck. Three days and nights. And I met a Jewish man like myself who was a seeker after truth. And some little church had been giving out New Testaments on the waterfront when he wrote a ship in New York and he got one. When I learned that he had it, I said, Say, may I borrow that, please? You know, guys, I had never read the Bible in my life, as I told you. And I was never interested in reading the Bible. I wouldn't even read a tract, I don't suppose. But for the first time I was really curious to open this book only because of the lives that had been encountering mine and speaking to me about God and Christ. And I found myself a place by that bulkhead. I slipped to the deck, there was a porthole over my shoulder. Inside the well-paying passengers were living it up and their laughter was coming out of the night's air and we bums were huddled together for warmth. And in that atmosphere I read that book. See, he came as a physician to those who are sick. And I was a man who was sick in my soul. And as the moment I started reading that book, I knew this book was different from any book I'd previously read. It had such a compelling authority, and I was so drawn to the personality of Jesus. I didn't know who he was, but I knew in my heart that everything that he represented was everything that the world desperately needed. I understood immediately why he was in conflict, not with the broken and the lost, and the, but, but those who were presumptuous and proud and religious for whom he was a threat. And I, he, he had been making the most fantastic claims. I never heard a Jew speak like that. He allowed men to fall at his feet and worship him and call him Lord. And I don't know no Jew will ever allow that. Why well, We won't we even spell the word God. We'll spell G-D. And he, he was allowing men to worship him. And he said, if you see me, you'll see the Father. I and the Father are one. And he said he hadn't come to destroy the law. He'd come to fulfill the law. I said, either this is the most uh, unspeakable presumption and chutzpah, nerve, that I've ever heard, or this man's a lunatic, or... Maybe he is who he claims to be. And I came to that episode where that woman was taken in the act of adultery. Remember that? And she was flung at his feet, and these self-righteous men were bristling with anger, and they had the opportunity to do him in, and their foam was forming their mouths, and their eyes were ablaze, and they said, "Okay, wise guy, I could just—I could just sense their delight in having the opportunity to do him in." Jesus is infuriating, even to this day, to those who want to keep their little kingdoms intact. Oh, he makes a stand revealed and naked by his beautiful holiness, his impeccable character, that Nazarene. He's he's not the Jesus that's that's been represented on black velvet with sequins that's turned us Jews off for generations with blonde hair and a straight nose. He's a Jewish Jesus. He's a suffering Jesus. He's a real Messiah who came to lay down his own life. We could believe that kind of Jesus. And I didn't even know that Jesus was a Greek name and that his Hebrew name is Yeshua. From the the name Joshua, God saves, Yeshua HaMashiach, if I had only known that, but nobody told me. I thought we Jews had our religion and we Gentiles had yours. What had Jesus to do with me? And I thought, well, i have got him now. He said he'd come to fulfill the law, and the law says death by stoning. What could he say? I was afraid to read on. I closed the book. My heart was racing, and the sweat was oozing out of my hands. I was so scared for him, because he was a new hero. I felt something quickening in my heart, I didn't want to see him go. But what could he say? I thought, well, catch you're clever. What would you have said? And did I rack my brain? I turned up every iota, IQ that I have. And I don't know how long it took me. I leaned back, finally exhausted. I realized there's no human answer. And I really expected the worst. And I opened up that book and described Jesus bent over the earth poking his finger in the dirt with these men circling him with their eyes ablaze and this woman weeping at his feet. And he looked up and he spoke that one line, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. That line came up off the page and penetrated my eyes and something started to go up into my brain and my body began to shake and to quake and fantastic thing, it didn't stop in my brain and I thought my brain was Everything. That's where I lived. But something began to turn down where I really lived. Out of the heart precede all the issues of life. And something was turning and cutting and winding, like a knife's blade digging deep, deep, deep into that inmost being. And it cut through every issue over which I had ever agonized all my life. What is truth I used to cry out? What is justice? What is mercy? What is righteousness? And when that knife blade hit home, I knew in a single moment of time, I was an atheist just a moment before, there's a living God. No man could ever have conceived or spoken that. That's a divine utterance. There's a living God and I'm reading from his word and Jesus is who he claims to be. Do you know that the word of God is quick, powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword to the cutting asunder of the soul and the spirit? And God cleaved me in two on the deck of that ship. And I wish I could say to you that when I recognized that there's a living God and that Jesus is my Messiah that I cried hallelujah. But I didn't. I was embarrassed to death I was mortified. What am I going to do now? What will I tell my mother? And
1: (laughs) what what will I say to my intellectual friends? How
0: embarrassing! The last statement that I had made at our faculty meeting in California, I rose to my feet with an angry statement, and I said, we need a revolution. And now I'm going to return to the same faculty and tell them that I believe in Jesus as the Messiah and that that the Bible is the inspired Word of God and that I'm one with these fundamentalists? God was calling me to die, and I didn't want to. I wanted to continue being Lord. I claimed to be a seeker of the truth, but I wanted truth which was convenient and fit into my philosophy and my system, but our God is not in that business. He is the truth and the way and the life, and we had better fit into his system. And I wrestled against God for another four or five months. Had a fantastic experience in Egypt with the Jewish communities representing the museum, and then I went on to Israel. I was up one side of the land and the other, and lived in kibbutzim and cities, searching, searching. And in Jerusalem, I found a Jewish boy that I had come to know nine months earlier. We left the ship in New York together, and in nine months he became an Orthodox Jew. And when I told him that Jesus was wooing me, breathing down my neck, he got scared.
1: <laughs> and he had me to stay at the Hebrew University
0: in Jerusalem, and he gave me a bed. And I went to the library every day, he put books in my hands, I spoke to professors, and the more I read, and the more I spoke, the more I was becoming convinced that this New Testament, the beauty of it and the truth of it was unspeakable. You know, this is the same Jewish boy who has since become a rabbi. And when I came from Kansas City New York just a few months ago to assume this ministry, uh, I'm responsible for the outreach of two and a half million Jews in New York. hope you're going to pray for us. My first day in New York, in front of Columbia University, distributing tracts, who do I meet? The <laughs> rabbi.
1: <laughs>
0: My, how our, how our lives had gone in different directions in six and a half years. And I stayed with him that night. We went to a synagogue. We were up till four in the morning. I stayed with him the next night and was sharing the things of God, how God had been using me to bring healing and deliverance, that I'd seen people hear from epilepsy, from uh, cancer, from uh, blood uh, conditions, uh, people delivered from anxieties and fears and distresses and just the most fantastic miracles. And I'm just an ordinary believer in the name of Jesus. And uh, that next morning we had breakfast together in his room, bagels and, you know, the whole thing. And somebody's licking his lips. And he took out his little prayer book after meals. I said, look, um, how about if I just pray out of my heart? Do you think that'd be just as acceptable in God? He said, yeah. So I prayed. And the moment I started, the Spirit of God took hold of my prayer, and I began to weep. And I prayed for him and Jewish men like him, that God would make them true rabbis of Israel, true teachers of Israel, that the light of God would come into their lives. And when I finished praying, this guy looked at me. His eyes were like that. He said, Artie said, here I am, a, an Orthodox rabbi, and I can't say for certain that I believe that God even exists. And he says, you're a Jew in the tradition of Elijah. You know, that's the only way to be a Jew. It's the only kind of Jew that God has ever contemplated. One who's bold for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. Elijah said, If the Lord my God liveth before whom I stand, it shall not reign, but according to my word. And I tell you that the age of apostasy is again upon us. And God is looking for Elijah's, men who are going to be moved by the word of God, which will be immediate to obey when he tells them that he's going to go feed them by ravens, and who will confront the Ahabs of this word, world without the slightest trembling and fear, because they know that the God before whom they stand lives. So, he put me on a bus one day, six and a half years ago in Jerusalem, that same boy, to visit a Hasidic Jewish community, pious Jews. I never got there. I put me on the wrong bus. I got lost. And I was in a section of Jerusalem. I didn't know. I'd taken that bus many times to downtown Jerusalem. I don't know how it happened. Even to this day, it was pointless to go on. I walked out of that bus and I walked into the first door I could find and the woman made me a map and I was just about to leave. I noticed there was a bookstore. And I took a look at the titles at the and I stopped dead in my tracks. It said New Testaments, Bibles, and Christian commentaries. I turned and looked at that woman's Jewish face. I said, what is this place? She said, we're a congregation of Hebrew Christians, Jewish believers in the Messiah, and this is our bookstore adjoining our chapel. Did you hear that? That's what I heard in my heart right then, and I heard a still small voice that said, Art, you're not to leave. I, I like to obey that still small voice. And I stayed for five days with these Jewish believers. There was a Pentecostal congregation of Jews. <laughs> I didn't know what the word meant. (laughs) But I saw Jews praying with such power and with such authority as if they really knew God. I saw the manifestation of the supernatural God in their midst. And when I saw them worship with their hands above their heads, I thought, that's it, cats. That's the clincher. You can't learn that in Sunday school. You can't do that by rote. Something has got to happen in here and that's the result of the overflowing heart that truly knows God. And they were giving me a Bible course for four days. They were praying over me with me, opening up the scriptures, showing me the prophecies in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New. And I went to sleep that fourth night, agitated out of my skull, sleeping on the front pew at that chapel, trying by the power of my intellect to put all the pieces in the place, and it didn't work. And in my sleep that night, something happened. Something fell in my heart, just like click, click, click. And I woke the next morning with a most wonderful sense of peace and calm, the first time in 35 agitated years. And I came to that breakfast table and I said to that Jewish woman, the spirit-filled saint of God, Rina, I believe. I understand. And when that woman heard me say, understand, she fell out of her seat onto the floor and knocked her chair over with her hands above her head. She was praising God. And the tears were rolling down her face because her prayer that night had been, Lord, we've done everything with this stubborn man. You make him to understand. You know what God showed me in my sleep that night? He would take me by the hand as a child. Unless you come as a child, you're not. you can't enter the kingdom of God. My intellect, my presumption, my pride, my experience had nothing to do with it. And he was leading me step by step, encounter by encounter. He'd pick me up off the side of the road. He had put his book in my hands. He had brought me to this crossroad in Jerusalem. And now it was put up or shut up. Receive or reject. I could have made a lot of excuses. I didn't understand the virgin birth. I didn't understand the trinity. A lot of theological difficulties. But I understood only too well who it was who was speaking to me out of the pages of this book. He lives. He's a living Messiah. He speaks as no Jew ever spoke. He said, Art, if you see me, you see the Father. I and the Father are one, and Art, no man ever comes to the Father except he come by me. Amen. I bent my neck that day. Oh, it was hard to get the words out of my mouth. First prayer in 35 years. I never bent my neck to anyone. Proud, arrogant, but I was bending it before the only one who deserves our complete loyalty, our allegiance, our heart, our life the God of all this world, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Messiah, Jesus. And I said, Lord, have me. I don't understand fully what you did on that cross, but I receive it. Forgive me and cleanse me and come in and possess this life and do with me as it pleases you. I didn't feel a thing after that prayer. But from that day on, day by day, I began to sense something new working in my heart and life. I couldn't curse for the life of me. I couldn't get angry. My bit of vocabulary just went like that and God is working and needing a new character, a new personality in me. Gentiles have been a blessing in my life, those that are filled with the Spirit of God and know Him. When I returned to the teaching profession, I lost every one of my friends. They had a, a, a get-together for me that first night back in California, and they had one of their hot intellectual discussions, and I was completely out of it for the first time. And about midnight, someone turned to me and said, Aunt, what's with you You're usually in the sick of these discussions? I said, I'm sorry, but I just realized that these, this discussion is completely irrelevant to life. I had never seen that before. It was just a hair splitting over something totally inconsequential. And they said, Oh, well, what do you think is consequential to life? What do you think is relevant to life? I, said, da, dun, da. <laughs> I had just that day in the Greyhound bus, said, Lord, I said, this is yet too new for me. I don't want to botch it up for you. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. But the word had gotten out that something had happened to Art. And all conversation ceased, and they all turned to look at me, and I began to relate my experience, and how I came to the discovery, or how he came to discover me, and what had happened in my life. And I tell you, their eyes just got larger sources, and their jaws dropped. I was told that I had gone off the deep edge, and that I needed a psychiatrist. And everyone who was telling me that were people who were seeing psychiatrists one or two times a week. (laughs) And I was was sitting there with a beautiful piece of God in my heart, here these people cheating on each other and their wives and husbands and every filthy thing to advance themselves in the academic world. And I'm the only one sitting here with peace and their all agitated, discordant lives, seeing psychiatrists and they're telling me that I freaked out and got up the deep end. Every one of those people turned from me. Some with disdain and contempt and some with real anger and one with real hatred. The only one who remained was my Jewish friend, Art Goldberg. And he was just going to tolerate me you and know, humor me. I- I'll come out of this, you know, I've been a Marxist, I'll come out of this too. But God saved him before he died in a swimming pool accident. And God made a new teacher out of me. Things began to happen in the classroom, but not before a certain event took place. It wasn't long before I realized that even with my new-birth experience, I didn't have the quality of love and compassion, power to meet the needs of students five times a day coming in against my life. These kids didn't want to be in my class. Some of them had the ugliest kinds of home life that you can describe, forced out in the streets to prostitute, to provide drugs with their fathers, Some were compelled to sleep with their fathers. I mean the most knotted and twisted lives. And here, through the instrument of history, I was trying to reach them for God. Oh, I was broken by my inadequacy. I needed all the fullness of God, and I was crying out for this precious baptism in the Holy Spirit, and I was not getting it. And I began to think, well, maybe uh, God doesn't bless these self-conscious intellectual types. And uh, that's the price I have to pay, you know. But one night, it wasn't in a church, it was in a home. We've got to meet God's conditions. We've got to be in one spirit and in one accord. It's got to be faith which works by love. When we meet God's conditions, we'll have his perfect answer. He's not changed. He's the same book of Acts God. We've changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I was in a home in Northern California, way out there in the sticks, there wasn't a Jew for miles around, there was just a little community. And these people, Gentiles, they all loved the Jews. That's why I was with them. They knew more about Jewish life and culture than I did. They were studying Hebrew, they were making plans to live in Israel. I said, how come you have this love for the Jews? And this woman said to me, I don't know, she said, but I know that our God loves your people. And to the degree that we have his love in us, we love you also. Did you know that the Jew is God's barometer for the Gentile believer? How are you feeling about the Jewish people tonight? Because in the natural, we don't commend ourselves to you. We're much too successful to be liked. (laughs) Right? There's only one way to explain your love it's supernatural. That's God's perfect way. And in that beautiful atmosphere of love, we've been speaking about the things of God. It was time to go home. We all stood to our feet, and somebody said to the host, Okay, Bob, you pray. And if anybody wants to follow, let them do so. I thought, Well, not me. I'm too self-conscious. I'm only, I was one, at that time, one of those self-conscious Christians, you know, who didn't like to pray a lot, even say grace at the table. And so Bob prayed and nobody made a move to leave. And I began to sense of a strange something happening in the atmosphere, like a hush and a presence came into that room. And then Bob commenced praying again in tongues and one by one they all followed. And I had my eyes closed and I, I was beginning to cry. And it sounded to me like I was in an ancient synagogue and they were wailing in Hebrew. And I was a man who wasn't given to crying. I could count the times on the fingers of one hand. I was so hard. I had been through so much. I had been knocked from pillar to post. I had been betrayed by women. I was a rock. And I was weeping because of the presence of God. And their prayer stopped. And they all with one voice turned to a Jewish girl, an Israeli girl who had just received the baptism a weekend before. They said, I believe, Jaffa, that you were to lay hands on art. Well, I was in real competition with that girl as a Jewish believer. But I went right down on my hands and knees on that living room floor. I didn't care what I was like. I was so desperate. I needed God so badly. And my prayer that day was, Lord, except you touch me, except you bless me, I die. That's what he was waiting for. I had to get the dross out of my life, my funny crocodile tears, my anguishings at the altar. I knew now what I was really doing. I was looking for a spiritual status symbol. I just want to say, well, I received the baptism also. I- I'm in. You think God's going to honor cruddy motives like that? He's got to work with us. What a patient, loving God, until we divest ourselves of all that and we're so desperate, Lord, except you touch me, I perish. The moment that that girl touched me, cow, something broke from around my chest. It felt like bands being loosed, and I began to suck air as if I had never truly breathed. <gasps> Just taking it in in great gulps, and I was weeping uncontrollably. I knew that if God had touched me, even I owed him more, I would have died. I could not have taken the glory of it. And in that same moment, something collapsed around my heart, and God made me to know that it was a wall, And that wall was a lifetime's accumulation of resentment and anger and bitterness that had been stored up in my heart and coagulated and become hard and developed as a rock around my heart, between my heart and the hearts of men and the heart of God. And when He touched me, it collapsed. And for the first time in my life, my hands were above my head. I didn't care what I looked like. The water was running down my face, my nose, my ears. I was sobbing, choking and spluttering. I didn't care. And my, I was praising God for the sense of freedom and exhilaration. And with every heave and sob of my crying, out came this filth and this granulated junk that was breaking up into pieces and flushed out of my mouth, until I stood before God with my hands above my head, immaculate within. And in that minute, something either came in and welled up within me and began to rise up. I knew it was the Spirit of God. I knew it was love. And when it reached my head, my English language parted, and out came a language of heavenly praise. From that day to this, I've been God's fool. Mm -hmm. God took out of my heart by one touch, resentment, anger, bitterness, all the kinds of things that are sweeping over our earth today, between the races, between generations, on our university campuses, in our cities, in the nations of the world. We need God. Mm -hmm. We need the reality of the living God. We need to be touched of him. And you know how it works? I wonder why God saved me. I knew that he had blessed me through the ministry of Gentile people who picked me up off the road, who had laid hands on me, who had uh, brought me into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But one day in the church in California, I was giving this testimony, and when I finished, some people came over, and among them was a really poly-Gentile woman, nothing any special to look at. She said, Mr. Katz, you don't know me, Brother Katz, but you had my daughter when you first began teaching at the high school, and she used to come home from school every afternoon weeping over you, knowing that you were a radical and an atheist. Do you know what kind of prayer touches God? the effectual, fervent prayer of righteous men and women. It's not your pumped-up fleshly emotion which soon enough subsides. It's the burden and the passion of God which is manifest in the life of that person who is walking with him righteously. Let's begin to praise him, shall we? Doesn't he deserve our praise? Let's raise our hands and exalt the Lord. Create the conditions. Fulfill his word. God inhabits the praises of his people. Did you know that Judah means praise? And that to be a Jew, spiritually, is to have that heart circumcised that enables us for the first time to worship him in spirit and in truth. Shall we give him praise? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory to thy wonderful name. We praise thee and magnify the name of the living God. We thank you for the Messiah whom thou hast sent. We exalt the name of Jesus. It's that name above every name where a where man may be saved. Hallelujah, gracious God, we worship you and we praise and we wait on you for that day when every knee will bend and every mouth confess that Yeshua
1: is Lord. you.
0: To the glory of God the Father, the God of Abraham, The God of Isaac.